It certainly is wonderful to be with all of you today. As has been mentioned, we have a wonderful crowd and we appreciate your presence so very much. Today is the most significant day of our week. It's the Lord's Day. We have an opportunity to worship God today in spirit and in truth for which we are thankful and which we are grateful. I hope that what we have to consider for a little while perhaps might give you a greater appreciation for Jesus and what Jesus went through for the sins of the entire world so long ago. Our text will be found in the book of John, the 19th chapter, and we want to begin reading there in verse 14. Now, it was the preparation day of the, of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus and led him away. One more passage I'd like to notice in our introduction, and that's found in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 22. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. After Jesus was tried in Pilate's hall, <clears throat> Pilate had to make a choice, even though he knew that Jesus was innocent. You remember that there were two trials. There was the religious trial and there was the civil trial. By the time Jesus is now before Pilate, he had already been really convicted of nothing. He was guilty of nothing in the religious trial. And all of a sudden now, Pilate has to make a decision. And I think it's something that even rings true today. What am I going to do about Jesus? And in all the times and in all the instances where Pilate wanted to pass the buck and not make that decision, he had to make that decision. And you know what? So do we. Everybody has to make the decision in their life, what am I going to do about Jesus? And nobody could ever make that decision for you. And God will not make that decision for you either. you got to make that choice. you got to make that decision. Where am I going to live? How am I going to be? What is my decision about Jesus? Well, Pilate is faced with the problem. And interestingly, when John chapter 18, when they bring Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate says for the first time, what evil has he done? What is he guilty of? What did he do? It's interesting what they respond to. This is how they say it. They didn't say, well, he was guilty of X, Y, and Z. The first thing out of their mouth, they said, do you really think we would have brought him to you if he really wasn't a bad man? In other words, uh, don't indict us. We're pretty important people. And yet they had nothing to say. And they came to Jesus. They came and brought Jesus to Pilate. And now Pilate has to make a choice. You know, the spiritual application, I think, applies to all of us today. What does Pilate do? First thing he does, he sends him to Herod. Herod was the big cheese, I guess you might say, in Galilee back then. Jesus was from Galilee. And so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Herod basically says, it's not my problem, and sends him back to Pilate. And again, Pilate has to make a decision. Well, as we move into John chapter 18, verse 39, we're going to show three things. Number one, we have Pilate's failing proposals. Number two, we have Pilate's fatal panic. And number three, we have Pilate's final pronouncement. 
Let's begin now with Pilate's failing proposals. He doesn't want to make the decision. He doesn't want to crucify Jesus. Here they are. Proposal number one. In John chapter 18 and verse 31, you take him and judge him yourself. You remember what they said? They said, you know it's unlawful, Pilate. We can't crucify anybody. We can't execute anybody. You have to do that. And by the way, a little side note here. You've heard me preach this. You've heard me say this. I'm going to say it again. I just love it because there's no other way to put it other than God's totally in control. At the time of the crucifixion, at the time of the Lord's sentence to die, in A.D. 33, the power to or the, uh, the power to or the authority to inflict capital punishment, the right of the sword, only belonged to Rome. That was in A.D. 33. When did the law change? Not by accident. In about A.D. 30, the law changed. So in other words, about the whole time that Jesus would be on the face of the earth preaching in his personal ministry, beginning in A.D. 30 and ending in A.D. 33, the right of the sword only belonged to Rome. Brilliant God was. Because if the Jews had that authority... They would have stoned Jesus to death, and if they did that, the Bible's not true. Jesus even said, if I be lifted up, he means on the cross, I will draw all peoples unto myself. The Old Testament refers to Jesus being hung on a tree. He has to be elevated and crucified. God is totally in control. So yes, Pilate says, now, uh, you judge him yourself, and they said, we can't. We don't have the authority to do that. So here was another failing proposal. Shall I re release the king of the Jews? And you know what's interesting about this? There was a custom, you remember, around Passover time, that they would release someone, and Pilate said this, that we would release someone to you uh, during the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release you, the king of the Jews? Now, can you just put yourself in the mind of Pilate? Maybe he's thinking about a week prior. Obviously, the religious leaders want to crucify Jesus, right? What about the people? Maybe the people will rise up. In fact, only a week before, when Jesus came in and he made his triumphal entry on the back of a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem, it was Hosanna to the highest. It was Hosanna to the king, right? Surely somebody will say, no, uh, we don't want Jesus to be crucified. And you remember this too, a little side note about the donkey. I used to think... That when Jesus rode in on the colt of a donkey, I thought the donkey was part of the humiliation, part of the uh, humbling of our king and so forth and so on, coming in like no other king ever had. I was wrong in that. The donkey had nothing to do with his humiliation at all. When a king in the Old Testament rode into battle, he rode a horse. When a king came in a time of peace, he rode a donkey. Jesus, being our king, setting up a kingdom of peace, rode the peaceful animal called a donkey into Jerusalem. Amazing what God did. Just maybe some of these people will say, no, let's not crucify Jesus. Jesus is there now between standing next to a man named Barabbas. He was a robber. In the Greek, it means bandit or highwayman. Now, just a little thought here. Have you ever wondered, 
Didn't anybody cry out for Jesus? And if they did, how loud was their voice? Didn't anybody stand up for Jesus? Here you have the worst of all men standing next to the Lord. And Pilate says, which one of these do you want me to release? They didn't say Jesus. But did anybody? Did anybody cry out for Jesus? Kind of the same thing today. Sometimes. Jesus is now standing next to a man that he described himself with the story of the Good Samaritan. He said that a man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves. You know what kind of thief he was talking about? He was talking about this exact kind of a man. A horrible man. A terrible man. And now he's standing next to the Lord and Pilate says, which one? You want me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews? And they said no. They said no. Interestingly, about the word Hosanna, when they came in a week before saying, when Jesus came in, they said Hosanna. If you look up the word Hosanna, by definition, you will find this. One definition is this. It's an expression of adoration, praise, or joy. Now, what were they actually doing? The phrase that we're reading about in the New Testament, Hosanna, is a Greek form of the Hebrew appeal to God for help. In fact, you know what it's called? It's called Hoshia Na. And it means this. Save now, we pray, give us victory. They weren't praising Jesus. They were saying, give us victory. What kind of victory? Maybe national victory. Take the thumb of Rome of the oppression that they were under and lift it. Jesus is going to be a king. He's going to establish a kingdom. They misunderstood. They followed him into Jerusalem as he rode on the coat of a doggy and said, Hosanna to the king, to the highest. Amazing. You know, I, I preached a series back in, I don't know, three, four years ago. You remember on the last week in the life of Jesus. I will tell you this, it was one of the most enjoyable studies for me uh, that I have ever done or series that I've ever done. And the reason that I did the series was really this. I did the series because I wanted to know what happened from the time that they said Hosanna to the time they said crucify him. Hosanna day to crucify day. And I enjoyed that study very much. I learned quite a bit. So... All the people follow like sheep. In fact, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 11, and the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them and the people followed like sheep. And you know what's amazing? Jesus is the very best man ever that lived and he's standing next to the worst. And they chose Barabbas. Again, folks, the life of a Christian is the greatest life you will ever live. It really is. But sometimes people don't look at the life of a Christian as a life that's all that fun. It is the greatest life you will ever live. Some people choose a life of sin. And Barabbas represents sin and all the bad stuff you can be. And some people choose Barabbas in their life. But to choose Jesus means to change your life and have a life that's better than any life you could ever have. And that's the life of a Christian. So, failing proposal number one. Here's another one. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. This is amazing. This is the second proposal here. He scourged him. 
kind of a way of compromise. Have you ever wondered, though, if you really found no fault in him at all, why are you going to beat him? It was a compromise. But if you really found no fault in him, why are you going to beat him? I want to talk about this for just a moment. This was a Roman scourge, and it's awful. It was a thick stick wrapped with leather. At the end of it were leather thongs of some length, and in the end of those thongs were held bits of brass and lead and bone filed to sharp points. The victim was then either stretched flat on the ground with his back up or tied to a post hanging or strapped suspended from the ground. The soldier would thrust that scourge across the back of the victim, tearing the flesh from his back. Man. I used to say this. You've heard me say they took us, they scourged him. Maybe they took a cat of nine tails. Okay. That's not what they did. I did a little research about a cat of nine tails. It was different than a Roman scourge. A cat of nine tails, by the way, was something that did have straps, but it had razor blade type edges. And all that was, all that did when they thrust the cat of nine tails on the back of a victim, it superficially cut the skin. That's bad enough, right? That's not what they did here. A Roman scourge is also called a flagrum. And what it would be is you've got sheep bone uh, shared there. Uh, you have lead. You have a lead ball. You have a lead piece. You got all this stuff. And when they thrust it across the back of the victim, it took the flesh off. If you knew he was innocent, why did you beat him? Why? Did you know that, as we've always said, that death by crucifixion or dying on a cross, on a Roman cross, was so awful. How many times have we said this? It was so awful that a Roman citizen could never be crucified. It was a form of execution for foreign slaves and criminals. We've said that many times. But did you also know that the scourging that happened prior to the crucifixion was also so difficult, also so horrible and horrifying, a Roman citizen could never be scourged either. What does Pilate do? Takes an innocent man. I got an idea. I'll just beat him. I'll scourge him. And maybe that will suffice. And maybe it goes away. I don't know if they laid Jesus flat on the ground. I don't know if they suspended him up like that. I don't know. But that's what they did to those victims. That was one of the two ways that they did that, tearing the flesh from his back, from his body. What else did they do? They put on a crown of thorns and a purple robe. They put on a crown of thorns and a purple robe. You know, I've probably thought in my mind it would have looked like a crown like that, right? And that they would take it and press it down on the head of Jesus. I read a scholar, though, that said, you know, it may have been worse than that. It may have been a helmet of thorns where the thorns would cover the entire head. And they would press down on the thorns. And they would do this because the outer thorns would not prick the hands of the one that put it on his head. 
And they would shove it down on Jesus' head like that, perhaps. And the blood streaming down his back. But not just that. They put on a purple robe. Why would they do that? Why would they put on a purple robe? And what else did they do? And they smote him. They hit him with their hands. In the original, the Greek translation, get this. And they kept saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept on punching him in the face. So why? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed. Prophecy fulfilled. Why the purple robe? You know what they do? I read a historian that said this. They had a game. Okay? They had a game. And the game was for with idiots and imbeciles. So that's a direct explanation. And what they would do is they would take people that had some challenges. And I hate that when people take on, pick up somebody or take on somebody that's less fortunate in some way and make fun of them. What an awful thing. But that's what they would do with these idiots and imbeciles. They would take them. You know what they do? They would put a purple robe on them and they would bow down before them like they were some kind of king and they would make fun of them. That's what they did to the Lamb of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Jesus says nothing. Amazing. So, then what? He's beaten, he's scourged, and then brought before the people as if to say, you will know that I find no fault in him. In fact, in verse 5, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Can you imagine the bloody mess the Lord was? And he takes him before the people and he said, Behold the man. Isn't it enough? Isn't it enough? Does he really look like a king? Does he really look like he's going to hurt anything? I think Pilate really thought this would suffice. Dangerous though, look at him. Look at him. It's bad enough for an innocent man to be beaten. They should have said that's enough, but that wasn't enough. And by the way, it wasn't enough because God said it wasn't enough. When you look and you see that God was thoroughly in control, it should give you a greater appreciation for Jesus that God was doing this for you. And Jesus, who could have called down those legions of angels and put a stop to the whole mess, it ought to give you a greater appreciation that Jesus was no man's victim. He was the ultimate victor, and he was totally in control. It doesn't lessen the pain of the beatings and the crucifixion. It just gives you a greater appreciation. It was done on purpose for you. Finally, though, this. You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And by the way, this is time number five of six times Pilate said, I find no fault in him. But there's more. There's more. Finally, they said this. He's got to die because he said he was the son of God. He said he was a son of God, the son of God. Let's notice in summary now, all the things they accused Jesus of. 
This is what they said and why he had to be crucified. Oh, this is what the Jews said. Here we go. Number one, they said he threatened to destroy the temple. That didn't work. Uh, they said he was an evildoer. No, he wasn't. They said he tried to pervert the nation. Nope, that didn't work. They said he forbade paying taxes to Caesar. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Render unto God that which is God's. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. That didn't work either. There's more. Then they said, oh, he's stirring up the people. That didn't work. They said he was a political revolutionary. Going to come in and start a new kingdom against Caesar, right? That didn't work. But then this. They said he makes himself to be the son of God. That means this. This is what they were saying. He's a false god, Pilate, and we don't like those guys. He's a false god. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Put yourself in Pilate's place now. Put yourself right there. Do you remember in the New Testament, when, in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas were called Jupiter and Mercury? They actually believed, and it was idol gods, but they believed that the idol gods, the gods somewhere, wherever they were, they came down to the earth and they actually inhabited the earth and dwelt among men. So that's why on, in Acts chapter 14, when they look and they see, oh, look at these two guys here. There's Paul and Barnabas. It's Jupiter and Mercury. Can you imagine Pilate's thinking now, I just scourged the Son of God. I just scourged the Son of God. Now what? Pilate saw the character of Jesus. He's concerned about his moral judgment. He understands all of this. He understands that his wife even said, do nothing about this man. I've heard some things in a dream. Don't touch him. Here's his fatal panic, folks. His fatal panic. What have I done now? And when the Bible says when Pilate heard that he was more afraid, it literally means he was in a frenzied panic. I just scourged the Son of God. A frenzied panic. What am I going to do? Well, John chapter 19 and verse 9. All of a sudden, Jesus is taken to Pilate's praetorium. Okay? And Pilate's trying to figure out, how am I going to get out of this? He took him to Pilate's praetorium and he said, where are you from? I guarantee you he didn't mean, hey, what's your address over there in Nazareth? No. He wanted to know if you're the son of God, where'd you come from? Where are you from? Scared to death at Pilate's praetorium. Jesus already admitted he was a king. That he was a king not of this world and Pilate wasn't impressed. But now he says, I'm the son of God. You know what's interesting? When he's asked the question, where are you from? Get this now, very powerful. Jesus answers nothing. Why did Jesus answer nothing? He said absolutely nothing for two reasons. Reason number one, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, I think it is. In Isaiah chapter 53... Yes, in verse 7, as a sheep before her shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. It was prophesied. That's exactly what happened. But have you ever stopped to consider there might be a second reason too? There was a second reason too. 
Jesus had already said that he was a king from another world, but Pilate didn't buy it. It had nothing at all to do. Pilate rejected that. It had nothing to do uh, at all with Pilate. It didn't mean a thing. And so Jesus was silent. I think there's a lesson for us, folks. I really do. I think there's a lesson for all of us. We're going to get to that lesson in just a second. Look at verse 10, though. In verse 10, don't you know that I got the power to crucify you and the power to release you? He answered absolutely nothing, but don't you know I got the power to crucify you or release you? Then, the next verse, Jesus says you would have no power at all unless it had been given you from above. In other words, all of that is ordained of God anyway. Then Jesus says this, get this, therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. What does that mean? And who's he talking about? So he's before Pilate, and Pilate had the, was the guy that could say if Jesus would be crucified or not. Jesus said, you wouldn't have that authority if you didn't get it from my father. And by the way, there's more. The ones that delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who is that? Judas? No. He's talking about Caiaphas. He's talking about the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Do you know why? They did not have any right, any legal right to do anything to Jesus. And when they had the greater sin, they had, they had the greater fault. Pilate had the authority to execute Jesus, but they didn't. That's why he's saying they had the greater sin. Okay. Have you ever stopped to think... Could anybody ever be that guilty to have the greater sin in this regard? We take a step back, and the Bible says this. When somebody knows the truth teaches us that and rejects it, in Hebrews chapter 6, it says that we crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Have you ever stopped to consider that there may be a time, please hear me, this is important, there may be a time in the life of a person when the Lord is silent. And when I mean silent, I mean the Lord has no longer has an influence in their life. Remember what happened to Judas? All of the wonderful appeals and the softness and the love in the heart of Jesus in all that he said. Even in the Last Supper, as they sat down there and it's to the Lord's Supper, it was Judas put to the left of Jesus, which was the ultimate position of honor. And he turned and gave him first. But there was a time when Jesus spoke no more. Everything changed. Remember that? And finally, Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Then it says, get this, and Satan entered Judas. You know what that means? That meant that Satan was now directing his ways, not Jesus. Jesus was now silent. All right. Listen to this. That's why when somebody drifts away, that's why we have to be the lighthouse. That's why we don't write people off. If you're drifting out at sea, but you can 
faintly see the lighthouse on the shore. And you can barely hear the sound of the horn from a distance. At least you know your way back. We do too much writing off, folks. We do too much writing off. And it just can't be. Now, you're not the light. You're not. I am not. Jesus is the light. But we are the lighthouse. And sometimes people drift so far, you know what happens? It goes so long, they drift so far, they forget where they came from and they forget how to get back. Three years ago, I held a gospel meeting in Texas. And I went out one morning and I was, I just felt good. And I started to run. And I ran and I ran. I just felt better and better. I got that second wind. I just felt great. I literally quit paying attention to where I was. I just kept running. I ran for one hour in the opposite direction of where I was staying. One hour. Finally, I had enough and I thought, wait, I got to get back. And I turned around. You know what happened? I was completely lost. I was so lost, I forgot how to get back. I made a phone call to a guy. I said, hey, I need brother so-and-so's uh, address. He said, I don't have it, but I got his number. I had to call the guy I was staying with and ask him, uh, what's the address? So I could put it in my phone and I could figure my way back. Because I was lost. When people drift, folks, we have to still be some kind of an influence in their life so that they can see clearly someday, perhaps, how to get back. How to get back. In verse 12, verse 11, from that point on, Pilate sought to release him. Verse 12. Pilate still can't get rid of Jesus, though. He knew he was innocent, but notice what the Jews said. They finally said, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And we know that they hated Caesar. That's how bad they hated Jesus. They were so clever to twist it all around, and Pilate knew it would be the end of his life. Pilate knew that to tolerate a traitor was the end. Tiberius would never tolerate a traitor. So this did it. Finally, Pilate had to choose between neck and soul. And now we have Pilate's final pronouncement. Here it is. John chapter 19. Verse 13, Pilate took his judgment seat. Verse 14, he says, behold your king. Verse 15, once more, shall I crucify your king? They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Can you imagine saying something that bad? Let his blood be on us and on our children. What else? Then he delivered him to be crucified. And they led him away. Folks, what's that saying about, what's it saying about us or to us today? I think it's saying this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter when you live. You have a choice to make. You have a decision to make about Jesus. And the entire point that I want to emphasize to you this morning is this. 
Pilate attempted repeatedly to get rid of Jesus, and he couldn't. Do you know why? Because nobody can. No man can. If you think that we can wiggle out of our commitment to Jesus Christ and our final decision, we are wrong. We are wrong. That's a choice that we need to make. So, folks, listen to me. When you hear the invitation, when you hear what the Word of God says about your life, you listen now. You listen to the Lord. Don't listen to me. You listen to the Lord. Because it just may be that in time, complete rejection of Jesus, you'll stop hearing his voice. He has no more influence. So listen to it before the Lord is silent. Now, the Lord is constantly reaching out, wanting you to be saved. What I mean by silent, again, I want to clarify so I'm not, I don't want you to confuse this. It's not that the Lord's giving up, but the Lord no longer has a voice if you gave up on the invitation on what to do in order to be a Christian. Don't ever let that happen. All right, in closing, what shall I do with Jesus? Well, he was taken to Golgotha. He was taken to Golgotha's brow. He was taken to a place of crucifixion. The word Golgotha, why is it called that? It's Aramaic for the word skull. It's also called Calvary. That word comes from the Latin word calva, and it means bald head or skull. What else? The skull-shaped hill in Jerusalem is what it's being referred to. I don't know if that's it, because you know what? You know what? There's two different hills. I, I know that. I've heard that. I've read that. I don't know what it looked like. Is this the one? Who knows? But this will serve as a representation thereof. It was a hill similar to that, and it looked like a skull. And some commentators tried to say they called it the place of a skull because so many people were executed, there were skulls laying there. I don't believe that at all. I think it's talking specifically about the look of the hill, Mount Calvary, Golgotha. He was crucified, and then he had to be buried. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Some scholars say it would have been something like that. I don't know. Some scholars say it must have been something like that. I don't know that either. But he was buried in a rich man's tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea just happened to be standing by with a brand new tomb for the Lord. Fulfilling the prophecy, his grave was to be assigned among wicked men, but with the rich man in his death. That's what he would be. Don't you see? God is taking care of it all. He was buried and on the third day, that early Sunday morning, as the song we used to sing, Up from the Grave He Arose. Up from the Grave He Arose. He now is sitting at the right hand of God. He's on His throne. He's our King. He's our Lord. And do you know right now, right now, as we live and as time stands, you know what Jesus is? He's our King, and He is our Lord. When He comes back, he will not be those. When he comes back, he will be the judge. And it's fitting, for the Bible says he's the one with the nail prints in his hands. He's calling out to you today. Are you not a Christian? You need to be one today. You need to come today believing in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess his name as the Son of God. And be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Maybe you've taken those steps. Maybe you have drifted. Don't do that anymore. 
Come back. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.